Please stand for the reading of the word from Genesis 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. The word of the Lord. Be to God. Please be seated. Good morning, Highland. It's, uh, my name is Shane Hughes. I am one of the ministers here. And if this is your first time to join us, we're in the season of seeking to discern who our next leaders are going to be. And that kicks off today. Uh, so I want to tell you that there are two ways for you to engage in the process of nominating those that you believe would be good elders for the next season at the Highland Church of Christ. One way is to use that QR code, and it's, if you miss it here, it's in your email and some other places around the building where you can fill out a form online. If technology is not your thing, uh, then you can find a paper form at the information desk at either uh, atrium, and uh, people will be there if you have questions or how to answer those questions. Uh, this is an important season for our church as we begin to think of the men and women whom God has already called, whom the Holy Spirit has already invested in to be our next leaders. And so I want you to prayerfully consider who in your, the neighborhood of your church is being raised up to be a leader here at Highland. Um, I also want to tell you that uh, today at 3 o'clock at the uh, at ACU, the big amphitheater next to the Tower of Light, there is going to be uh, a rally for Christians against hate. And this is, going to be, this is being put on by the Carl Spain Center out of ACU. This is uh, Jerry Taylor's organization. Uh, Highland, by the way, helped start uh, that, that uh, center uh, with, a, with effort and, and, a, and a gift at the very beginning. So I want to encourage you to come and, and listen to that at 3 o'clock and experience that if you're interested. We're starting a new series this today called Radicalized. And uh, before we jump into the sermon text, I'd like us to pray if you'd pray with me. Father God, we are grateful for this time together. We're grateful for all the people that you have gathered in your name, not only here in this building, but those around the world who profess Jesus Christ as Lord. And we ask that you bless them, despite their circumstance, bless them, despite the wandering nature of their faith, despite the hope or hopelessness in their situation. Father, please bless them and be present to them in a powerful way today. And now, Father, as we turn our hearts and minds to your word, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching, that I might speak your truth and love to these, your people. And it's together that the church says... Amen. What does it mean to be radicalized? It's a pretty easy story to tell. Story like a, a farm boy from a desert region of this planet who, after his parents are murdered in a military op action by an occupying force, is radicalized to an ancient religion by a loner that lives in the neighborhood. 
He falls into a rough but purposeful crowd, smugglers, insurrectionists, and eventually takes part in a series of terroristic acts. Some of you know where I'm going. You know who I'm speaking of. It is, of course, Luke Skywalker from Star Wars. Which is to say, sometimes you get you're radicalized to the right things. What does it mean to be radicalized? There's a scene in Goodwill Hunting where Robin Williams' character, who he plays a therapist, is talking to a, a professor that the subject of their conversation is this janitor that works in the building of the professor that it seems to be a brilliant and troubled individual. He is solving math problems that are unsolvable on the chalkboards in the math department. And the conversation goes something like this. Robin's character, Robin Williams' character begins by saying, in the 1960s, there was a man that graduated from the University of Michigan, did some brilliant work in mathematics, Specifically, bounded harmonic functions, and then he went to Berkeley. He was an assistant professor, showed amazing potential, then he moved to Montana and blew the competition away. The professor responds, yeah, so who was he? Robin Williams' character responded with, Ted Kaczynski. The professor said, never heard of him. Now, you probably know who Ted Kaczynski was. His nickname was the Unabomber. Ted Kaczynski had a brilliant, a bright future and a brilliant mind. And in fact, if you read the manifesto of the Unabomber, what you find is this screed against technology. And he argues that the industrial revolution has removed the soul from human beings and created, put it in this kind of sheer that creates angst in, in, the, in modern life. And the only way we can deal with this angst is through self-medication by entertainment or watching sports or trying to numb the effects of, of technology's advance. And the hard thing about reading Ted Kaczynski's writing is that he's not wrong. His conclusions were, but his analysis is sound. What does it mean to be radicalized? Well, it's not someone that's suckered in to bad ideas, a fool that is misguided. It's a bright, some people with bright futures and brilliant minds. It's not someone that's mentally ill. Osama bin Laden built an international organization. He built felt fierce loyalty and commitment from others, and he carried out complex attacks. We know those attacks as 9-11 against the World Trade Center in New York. This is not a person who's mentally ill. Radicalization is a psychological trajectory that can happen to anyone. And the question that I want us to wrestle with over the next six weeks is, should Christians be radicalized? And I'm going to say yes, but not in the way you think. I want us to wrestle with the question, what does it mean to be radicalized to the gospel? What does it mean to be, what is radicalized peace look like? What does radicalized hope look like? What does radicalized faith, faith look like? And I wonder if we have been converted to a non-gospel. 
I wonder if slowly and surely over the last several years we are being converted to something that is not a gospel at all, but it claims to be. A gospel that, that proclaims violence and certainty and justice as vengeance that seeks power over the path of Jesus, and that is not a scriptural gospel. It's something else. It's the gospel as a solution to the problem of fear, not the gospel that points to faith and hope and love. It's the gospel that wants to paint its leaders as victorious. And make no mistake, if you read the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you spend time in the New Testament, what you see is that the path of Jesus leads him from his teachings to his healings to the cross, to his death. Because a gospel that proclaims radical faith, radical love, and radical hope will always be a threat to power. It will always be a threat to power. The other gospel that we're being sold is a gospel that is simply bland and it's bougie and it means nothing at all. And you can't tell the difference between yourself and your neighbor because you all just watch the same shows and eat at the same restaurants and you do the same things and you have the same hopes and there's really nothing there at all. And I wonder what it means to be radicalized to the gospel. Because I want to know what makes the church different. What makes us driven by the Holy Spirit. What makes us willing to sacrifice our good for the sake of others. What makes us willing to lay down our lives and pick up crosses and try to change the world for the story of God. And so I want us to begin this process by thinking of Abraham. Abraham is asked to wait on God. In the story that we heard today, it's the covenant that God makes with Abraham. And, and God says, I'm going to bless you. And Abraham says, that's great, but it doesn't really matter if you bless me now because I don't have any heirs. I don't have any children. So whatever you give me is going to end in, when I die. And God says, wait a minute, because you have no idea what I have in store for you. You have no idea. You're having trouble keeping up. I'm moving fast today. You with me? All right. See, that's my boy. Um, you have no idea what I have in store for you. Go outside and look at the stars. If you could count them, then you could begin to comprehend my blessing. God says, I will give you a child. And Abraham waits and waits. And he keeps on waiting. And if you know the story of Abraham, you know that what follows the story we just heard was this covenant that God makes. And it's, it's basically the same thing as a contract from the ancient Near East to the modern world. In the modern world, if you're going to sign a contract, you put, you put your signature down. If you're going to buy a, a house and you need a mortgage, you sign a stack of papers like 45 times to verify that it's actually you and you're going to do what you're going to say. In the ancient Near East, it was the same thing. This is what a contract looked like in the ancient Near East. You would offer a sacrifice by cutting animals 
animals in half, and you'd kind of make this bloody path with these animals, and then you and the person that you're making the contract with would walk through that pathway. And it was a symbol to say, if I break my promise, then let this happen to me. And it wouldn't matter if it was like an economic arrangement, like I'm going to sell you so much wheat for so much money, or it was an agreement about peace that our families, our houses are going to align for, for mutual peace and benefit. It didn't matter what it was. That's how you made the contract. But what's interesting about this fever dream that Abraham has is that there's only one person that goes through the separated animals. In his vision, it's a smudge pot, this burning black pot that moves through the animals, but Abram does not. Which says that God is saying, I am going to keep this promise regardless of your faithfulness, Abraham. I am going to keep this promise whether or not you are true to me or not, whether you hold your end or not. I'm keeping the promise because it depends on my character and it depends on my holiness. It depends on my action, not on yours. Now, God will make other covenants in the future with Israel, but this one is unique. I will give you a son. And Abraham waits and waits. He's 70 years old at the promise, if you read your Bible carefully, and he's 86 when Ishmael is born. He's 100 years old when Isaac the son of the promise, is born. And he's possibly 115, maybe even older, when Isaac is offered as a sacrifice. At 86, Sarah gives up on waiting. Maybe she has the brains. Maybe she's the one that believes that age-old piece of non-scripture that God helps those who help themselves. And so she offers her handmaiden, Hagar, to fix the situation. And Abraham just goes along with it. And we learn that sometimes the fix is worse than the waiting. Abraham waits and waits and waits. I think there's a non-gospel promise that wants to tell you that what faith equals is certainty. And that you don't have to wait very long. That God is actually a very prompt butler who delivers on time. And we bought into this lie and we bought into this notion because we don't have to wait for anything. If I have to wait for more than 10 seconds from a website to load, I'm just like, forget this. I'm flipping my desk. This is over. I want two-day delivery. I got to tell you, when I lived in California, we had two-hour delivery on a whole bunch of products from Amazon. When I came here, I was like, two days? Ridiculous. I want digital orders delivered now. And I want the solutions. And I want God to act promptly. If God doesn't answer my prayers in the first 15 minutes of me asking, I am willing to look at any other option. I'm not even as faithful as Sarah, who waited 16 years before she took action into her own hands. And because it's like temptation, most of us don't know how to resist temptation because we haven't done it for more than 15 minutes in a row. Most of us haven't developed the kind of skills and the posture needed to wait. Faith is not certainty. Faith is waiting for the promise of God. 
And sometimes it comes quickly. And sometimes it's 45 years. I have not been alive as long as Abraham waited for God to keep his promise. And I get angry when there's three or four cars in front of me in the drive-thru. And I wonder what our church would look like if we embraced radical faith that waits for God. We don't need a new hero to save us. We don't need violence to justify us. We don't need to save ourselves. We need to learn to wait in prayer. And I have no doubt that this is a difficult task. I see people waiting in prayer in this building all the time. I see them waiting for a child to be conceived, hoping and praying month to month. I see them waiting for cancer numbers to come back, praying for good results, hoping for more time. Waiting on God is not simple. It is an act of sheer faith. Karl Barth lived in a time when faith was in decline. He was a Swiss theologian in, in Europe right before World War I, and the, the religious climate in Europe was losing a sense of who God was. Even the most prominent theologians weren't believing in God. They were just believing in ideas. His take on the theological thinkers of the day was that they believed that speaking of God is speaking of humanity in a loud voice. And he argued that waiting is the antidote for such a sickness. Because I think sometimes we think when faith is certainty, if God doesn't move as quickly as we'd hoped, we need to act for God and move for God and speak for God when really all we need to do is to be silent and wait. Faithfulness is not the certainty of belief, but found in the quiet. It might take weeks or months or years. But we believe like those who mourn and those who long for justice and those who seek the face of God that when we wait, that in the waiting, we find the blessing of God. Our prayer team is going to be available for you now. We're going to sing in just a moment. Um, I'm going to invite them to come forward, and I want to invite you to stand. Our prayer team wants to pray for you. If it's something they can handle right now, you can come forward during this song. If it's a conversation that needs to happen over a cup of coffee with one of our leaders, they want to facilitate that as well. Uh, you can come forward. Please join us as we sing. May you find God's presence in the things that you look for. May you find God's presence in the things that you have been waiting for your whole life. May we not be quick to victory. May we not be quick to claim God's presence. But let's wait for God to arrive. 
may you be filled with God's presence.